0: Welcome back to Quiddity, the flagship podcast on the Searcy Podcast Network. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. Uh, We are here at our national conference, A Contemplation of Worlds. And John Hodges had agreed to sit down with me after his talk this morning and uh, do a little Q&A and and, and talk a little bit more about what he had to say. Uh, John is the director at the Center for Western Studies in Memphis, Tennessee. He is a composer. He has a uh, musical that's in the works right now. And uh, welcome,
1: John. Thanks very much, Brandon. Glad to see you again.
0: It's good to be back here with you. Uh, yeah. back in Charleston. Um, I wanted to start off. You, you kind of even before your talk, went into a little bit of exposition on the uh, the the parable of the of the unforgiving servant. And yeah. There's some really some yeah. great insights in there. So would you just talk a little bit more about that?
1: Sure, sure. That that has really struck me as lately. So many of the conflicts that we seem to have uh, between uh, ethnic groups, between cultures, if you want, uh, in our in our uh, country right now, um, where where the, the, the key element of the Christian faith seems to be missing, and that is forgiveness. Um, we do we do evil to each other, you know. We we do sin against each other. We have in the past, and we do now. Um, it's not it's not changing. It's we're all broken people, and we do these things. However, God has forgiven us. And because he's forgiven us, he seems to think we should be able to learn to be like him, and that's the hardest thing for us to do. So, I was struck by that that parable where he talks about how the uh, <coughs> the uh, servant is forgiven ten thousand talents, and then can't forgive his fellow servant a hundred denarii, which is uh, nothing compared by comparison. Um, and I think the call for us to to teach a very hard thing, which is you have been wronged and yet you should forgive. Mm-hmm. As though somehow um, we, what people think is it's not just, it's not right, it's not fair. I shouldn't be treated this way and then have to forgive it. Um, but I think the only way it's possible is if we remember that we individually have been forgiven so much already. And then by comparison, the sin that's been done against me uh, is, uh, is nothing, is as nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's only through that understanding, I think, that we can forgive. But the whole point was to say there's no way out of the conflicts that we've got unless we're willing to learn that lesson and and forgive. And again, we can't forgive unless we've been forgiven properly ourselves. So it all hinges on that 10,000 talent debt that we are individually have been given, uh, have have been forgiven um, by the work of Jesus. Well, thanks so
0: much for sharing that with us this morning. It was, it just kind of really struck me uh, to think about that parable.
1: Thanks. Um, Yeah. It's been on my mind a lot lately too. It's a very dark parable. If you look at it at the end, you know, where. Where the the uh, the result of not forgiving is eternal damnation. That's mm-hmm. literally what it is. And so, what happens if the church becomes the vehicle by which a teaching goes forth into the into the world that those who have been offended need to have justice and not f- learn to forgive? What happens then? Then the the one source, the one hope we've got uh, for salt and light in the world. Uh, disappears and we'll just be at each other's throats.
0: Yeah, that was really what struck me. I, I think I had missed kind of that that end that you brought up so clearly this morning. That it's not just that he gets the debt put back on him by the king, but his it, that that's going to now be paid through torture, not not through work that he can pay it off. Can't
1: it? Can't be forgive. It can't be ending. It won't. It'll never end. Right. Um, yeah, it's horrifying.
0: So uh, tell me again the name of your talk, and it was we were discussing. Right,
1: I was talking about worlds. You know, the the theme for the conference is worlds, right? A contemplation of worlds. And I was thinking, well, there are worlds. There's the the world, uh, you know, Augustine's idea of the city of man and the city of God. So they're two different worlds, and they uh, are in conflict with each other. But it dawned on me that that because I'm an artist, and I wanted to be able to talk about the importance of teaching the arts. Uh, to, to all these wonderful educators that, are, that come to your conference, come, come to the conference. Um, <clears throat> I thought, well, what, can I, what could I do? Well, the arts, I find, are the way to connect the invisible world with the visible world. So, so the art, our, our art is the, is the craft, the skill, if you will, of being able to take material objects and shape them in such a way that they reflect and communicate things that are invisible, um, Gothic cathedrals uh you know music um poetry p- paintings uh sculpture are all opportunities to do that just that and if you so so as an underpinning uh foundation, you have this idea that there are two worlds there 's the visible world made up of material there 's the invisible world uh that gives the visible world its meaning mm-hmm. uh and definition and so on uh so Um, Why why teach the arts? Because that's what it accomplishes for us. It gives us a a, a vehicle, a means, a communicational tool to be able to speak of the invisible to the next generation or to anybody uh, through the material. You know, just like we choose words for our sentences now, just as we're doing right now. We also choose color in our painting or we choose uh, melody or harmony or rhythm or whatever in the elements of music. Um, the way we build our, our uh, churches, um, everything has to do with making choices, this and not that, you know. Mm-hmm. Check, uh, <laughs> Chesterton, <laughs> Chesterton said one time that that art is like morals. You have to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> I've always thought that was very clever. But it's because you do, you have to make choices. Art, art is making choices. You choose this curve and not that one. You choose this color and not that one for this particular moment, you know, and all the elements of everything you're studying. So it becomes a skill at picking the right things to be able to get across the things that are invis- can't be seen, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking more in terms of, the worlds, the, the two worlds that were created when God made the world—that is, um, uh, the visible world and the invisible world—and uh, <clears throat> in support of this idea that the that the arts are doing this, um, I quoted uh, Romans one twenty, I think it is, that says that the invisible qualities of God are known. I'm paraphrasing here. Are known though by what is made. Mm-hmm. And by what is, and I took took that to mean not only made by God, but made by people, made by hands. You know, um, we we use. Well, I'm saying the same thing over again, over again. But the, um, we use the material to convey and communicate. Um, and that's what we're doing is we're talking between these two worlds. So I wanted to talk. It's easy to want to talk about, you know, don't don't love the world. Right. Um, don't uh, the, the world is a broken place. And uh, if you turn it into an idol, well, then it can be all well, that's quite right and uh, understandable. But what I was interested more in is the two worlds that were made really before the fall happened. Uh, the visible and visible. He is the creator of all things visible and invisible, right? We're told in Colossians. So uh, how do we make those things make, become clear? And of course, our the problem of our day I was trying to get to is that we as a culture have basically ignored the invisible part and focused our, all of our attention uh, in a kind of Enlightenment rationalism on the material and the things that we can measure and so on and uh and of course you you not only do you misunderstand the material that way because it's for a purpose uh, bigger than than that but uh, than our than our own sort of appetites uh, but also it means that you don't have any definition for what it's supposed to mean anymore, so we lose meaning if we give up the invisible part, and so if we're going to teach, we need to be able to uh inculcate or instill in our uh in our young people uh, a love for this action of looking into the invisible drawing it out and making it manifest and then passing it on
0: yeah that, that was one of the things um you mentioned early on was that there's the the material is good but it's mm-hmm. it's we've divorced it uh from from the from the invisible right um and right. the the two exist in a harmony uh in fact one of the you know you, you early on said that and that the adversary uh, is all about tearing that apart in my exactly. mind immediately went to uh the wedding vows and they yes. brought them a few minutes later uh a- and it struck me that the when it says let no man tear asunder right it's it's an instruction for us not to participate in the work of the of the devil of right? the devil uh, exactly right that that's what he's doing part of, of a family, or take part in that. You've you've taken part in in that work. Um, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit more about other areas you see where we've we've done that tearing apart, or that, that mm-hmm. tearing apart has happened in mm-hmm. society. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I brought up as an example, of course, Adam himself, that that uh, he's made out of the dust of the ground and breath breath of God, uh, and the combination of those two things makes up the soul, the human person. Um, and I I say that on purpose in the talk because I think. We in our modern thought uh, think of the word "soul" as the invisible part of us, and I don't think that's what Genesis two seven is talking about. It seems like it says that the soul is the combination of the physical and the and the immaterial. Spiritual. You know the yeah, and and so um, you know how um, in our in our uh, horror movies we have. Uh, It's kind of like most horror movies are uh, one or the other genre. Either it's the dust without the spirit, the breath, like a zombie Mm. movie. Uh, Or it's the spirit without the dust, which is a ghost story. Right. You see? And both of them are uncanny. Both of them are horrifying. Both of them are scary. But if you put the two of them together, it's not the least bit scary. It's just... Me, you, right, it's just right. the way we are, right? If the two of them put together makes perfect sense and it's wonderful. Well, the, the, the adversary, as you say, the, the devil himself, would like to put a wedge between those two things. He hates anything that God has put together and wants to dissolve it, to dis- disintegrate it. That's literally the word. To make, to make them, you know, int- int- integer is one, right? So to integrate something is to take various pieces and make them into one thing like a human being, or like a marriage, or like a chord in music. Three pitches, C-E-G, is a chord in music, right? And it's only one chord, but it's three different discrete pitches. Well, in that way, he would like to be able to dissolve the, the, the relationship, the, it disintegrate the relationship between dust and breath. And the way, of course, to do that was to convince them to disobey God. And sin, the sin in that disobedience, was the the, the peace that brings death into the world, right? The wages of sin is death. Death is the separation of the two elements, you see. Mm-hmm. So what I, I find so compelling about the Christian Uh, uh, salvation story is that he's not satisfied with just uh, saving our, our, as we think of it today, soul in the sense that our our invisible aspect is going to be saved. It's that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and there's going to be a general resurrection and a reintegrating of the dust and the breath in each of us. And we will live physical bodies in physical bodies. We'll recognize each other, you know. Mm -hmm. Because the real salvation isn't finished until uh, we can we can put those two pieces back together again. They were never meant to be separated. So it's the complete uh, victory over Satan's plan uh, to to say, "Death, where is thy sting?" You know, yes. where, O oh, death, is thy sting?
0: I like that that kind of classification of the of the horror genre. I think that's sometimes a, a genre maybe we struggle with uh, mm. as Christian classical educators and and um, how to teach it or how to whether we should even engage with it. Uh-huh. Um, and certainly there's a there's a there's an element of that in in modern storytelling which is just gore for gore's sake. Right. But I was struck. Uh, I had never read Bram Stoker's. Dracula, Dracula. Oh, and I was yes. struck how Christian the story yes, is. it is. Uh, when I read it a few months ago, um, but that dichotomy are those those two pathways, right? Either the spirit without the without the dust, or the dust without the spirit. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a that's maybe a genre we could we could draw a lot more out of. And really, some of the ancient literature has a lot of that element in it. We just we don't we
1: don't recognize it as more far. steeped in Christian thinking yeah. than we realize. Yeah, yeah. yeah Stoker's Dracula is an amazing book. It's an amazing book. I think we ought to know it.
0: Yeah, uh, it, for that reason. If you if you're listening out there and you've only ever seen some movie version of it from the last right. 20 years, it's they strip all of that Christian yes. strength out of it, but it's very um that is the that is what defeats evil in that story, so. That's right. I, That's I, exactly I right. You to check it out. Um you also talked a little bit about how we, we have to get our definitions uh, for the visible from the invisible. Right. And that's an, that's an element of our faith. That's uh, right. If you could just talk maybe a little bit more yeah. about that.
1: Well, if, if the invisible is, is known to us by revelation, then we have to have faith in that revelation in order to act in such a way as to make material objects that reflect that vision. Uh, if we if we don 't believe if we don 't have faith in that uh revelation then we're not, why would we ever bother to go about building or creating or composing uh things that reflect the the christian faith and that doesn 't mean that we wouldn 't build and create we just build and create things that are based on other beliefs you know so my 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 uh sort of closing statement was. Uh, that culture is the, is the accumulated uh, physical manifestations of what we believe. And that mean, goes for every culture, Christian culture, non-Christian culture. Um, it's because what we believe leads us to, uh, to make. We're going to make something. But the question is: Are we going to make something that is in keeping with the Christian faith, or not? And the only way you can you could make something that's in keeping with the Christian faith is if you really believe it. Otherwise, you wouldn't bother, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why I said I think it's it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of your beliefs, um, and the uh, the uh, uh, um, communication, the ability to communicate to the next generation um, what it is that we believe. In other words, to the, the culture around us makes the beliefs more—I guess the word is plausible—to the next generation. The ne- every generation has to learn to believe for themselves. Right. You can't—God, ha- as they say, God doesn't have any grandchildren, <laughs> you know. Either you're his— servant or you're his child or you're not and if you are it's because you have chosen to believe this yourself thanks be to god uh to for the ability to do that i mean that's i don't take the credit for it but i'm saying i think he uh i think we we have to make a culture that that is um persuasive, mm-hmm. that, that, that reflects the things that we teach. You know, it's one thing to say, um, materialism is bad and then live in a culture where all we do is buy things, right. you know, you think, well, pff, it doesn't seem very plausible, you know, it but, but if you, if you actually act the way that you believe, you know, like James talks about, show me your faith by what you do, what your works, you know, then, uh, Then I think when you then when you teach that this is the truth, there's some teeth in it. There's some gravity to it. I don't know what metaphor to use for that traction for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. You told a story actually that was encouraging to me uh, about a a younger family member of yours who's finished their first year of college and has been taught that don't believe in fairy tales. None of this is true. But at the end of but when she heard you talk about what you're working on, uh, she said. All the girls in the class want, still want to believe it.
1: We still want and, the fandals,
0: yeah, and the boys too. The boys want to believe there's something to fight for and something right. to fight after, and right. Um, and so, even at that college age level, as she's been kind of beat out of them quite a bit by that point, there's that there's that imagination that wants it. So, how how yeah. can we yeah. how can we stoke that in, in our students? Wow,
1: that's that's what education I think really should be for. That's what we should be doing in our. In our work as classical educators we ought to be giving them the stories and the music and the the painting and the you know all of the all of the 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 cultural artifacts that reflect and deepen our appreciation for the invisible um if you have a well it's, it's very obvious when you think about things like the scriptures um in in the church I was in just recently, uh, every just before the sermon, uh, the sermon uh, uh, scripture would be read, and then at the end of it, we would say, uh, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field, and then the congregation would respond, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever, and then the pastor would do his... his uh, Sermon, right? That was a little ritual that we did Okay, well, I know the Brahms Requiem I've conducted it many times And uh, there, is a, there is a movement dedicated to that scripture The second movement of the Brahms Requiem And he, he, uh, ta- he, he, he gives you music that talks about the first half of it That is, all men are like grass and all their glories like the flowers of the fields The grass withers and the flowers fall And he stops there And then he goes back over it again. And then with a little transition, he comes back and does it two more times. And if you know the scripture you're waiting for, but the word of our Lord stands forever, which is the sort of (laughs) punchline, you know, that's the great news, you know. Well, Brahms knew very well how our hearts go. And he interpreted that saying, before you can hear that But the word of our Lord stands forever. In the proper context, you need to spend a lot of time thinking about the first, Hmm. about how we are all here for just a moment. And the grass withers and the flowers. Um, All of our glory is like the flowers of the field. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, In German, it's all the... Herrlichkeit, the, 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 the lordliness, Herr, Herr is lord, you know, uh, Herr is sir, we say mister, kind of like, but uh, Herr, all the Herrlichkeit, all the glory of man of, the, of the, is, is just a fleeting moment, you know, mm-hmm. and we pass over that very quickly. Well, what I'm saying is, listening to that music and listening to it in the way that Brahms interpreted it, right. I get a far more profound moment in my heart, in my my soul uh, When he finally says Aber des Herren Wort bleibet in Ewigkeit but, but the word of the Lord stands forever In Ewigkeit, in eternity um, It makes the hairs on your head stand up With joy and with astonishment and all that Well, now I can't hear them read that in this service without also hearing this moment, right. and it stirs my heart to such a degree, you know. And it's it's just that music is a cultural artifact that made the profundity of that far more powerful. And uh, so we do that with with our art. That's what we can do. We can interpret the scriptures, but we can also interpret the rest of God's creation. God speaks through general revelation, right? So we talked about the firebird, and we had a little bit of a Mm -hmm. dance, where the firebird dance is uh, very bird-like. Yes, you know lots of f- chirping and flapping and bouncing and all sort of like a bird and uh, so it's not only the nature of the scriptures that we can depict, but we can depict the far older revelation of God, which is in the mountains and the sun and the you know and the the birds and the all the things that go on in the in the general revelation of of the you know the heavens are telling the glory of God we're told, so all of that can be subject for our art. As well, you know.
0: Yes, I, I want to come back to the Firebird in a minute. Okay, uh, but I did want to, uh, and I think I've heard you speak on this, and I've probably talked to you a little bit about it before the the idea of the muses. Uh, oh yeah. And and the muses inspired all the arts in in classical. Uh, but we, we think of music, but other things as well. Right. Um. But then, to amuse is is sometimes we maybe go too far, like you said today, and, and say it's you know anti muse, but maybe right, it's just a right. setting down because it's because yeah, momentary rest is, maybe of, is, is work. Sure. It takes work. Um, but you mentioned that, that, uh, more of our actual music. And I would say if you were talking about m- music proper, uh, but probably even more of our current art forms in general, yes, uh, uh our amusement. Yeah. Um, so when music becomes amusement, um, or art becomes music or film or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. uh, we're a culture that's kind of very, very thin, if not completely devoid of the actual things inspired by the muses. Right. Um, Right. So as we're encountering things, whether it's music or art, um, are there some ways for the parents and teachers for themselves first, and then to, and then to help educate their children? Mm -hmm. How do I distinguish between, is this music really of the muses or is this amusing me and distracting me you know <laughs> well, where do you start to I know there's some fine lines there yeah
1: i want to i want to say there's nothing wrong with being entertained there's nothing wrong right. inherently with being amused momentarily but the 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 tragedy would be if we think of all of the arts as for the purpose of distraction then I think we miss out because there's a lot more that it does than just distract. Mm-hmm. There are times when you, I remember Tolkien talking about, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings, and, and critics would say, uh, you, "Mr. Doctor, uh, Professor Tolkien, you know, you are just writing escapist literature." And his response was, yeah, it's escapist. That's exactly what it is. But there are two ways to escape. There are two different situations. One of them is if you are trying to escape from reality into unreality. And that's what they were accusing him of, pretty much. But what he said was, how about the person who's in prison that needs to escape from prison? That's what I'm writing, he said. We're locked in a materialistic, closed-minded sense about life and meaning and all those things. And what I'm doing is helping you escape that blinder, you know, those blinders, let's say. Well, in the same way, I think uh, art has the ability to speak to us about a lot more than just momentary diversion. And so if, if, they, if it all becomes just momentary diversion, then we've shot ourselves in the foot, kind of. We, okay. we lost track of it. Um, but, th- but the arts can, can speak to us and do speak to us, if we listen, uh, about um, things that we don't know yet. Things that we haven't heard yet. It broadens our minds, our souls. Uh, I heard a a guy say one time that uh, 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 reading, um, what did he say? Reading, um, um, well, he meant reading great books, but he said a particular book, and I can't think of what it was. But reading great books won't save your soul. And, of course, that's true. But, he said, after reading great books, there'll be more of a soul there to be saved. Hmm. So it's a matter of growing yourself into your humanity. Right. That's what we're after with the the education that we're offering here.
0: That I, yeah, becoming great-souled as, yeah, as a person. that's
1: right. That's right. And then there'll be more of you there. <laughs> that's what I want to see.
0: Well, I do want to come back to the Firebird. Uh, that was, uh, for our listeners uh, in the talk, you should go listen to that. There's some excellent on, took us through some of the actual music, and, and uh, for those of us uh, who have some music background, uh, picked up some things. And those who didn't, he, he really walks us through it very well. Um, but in particular, the the use of, uh, I'm blanking on the composer now. Stravinsky. Uh, Stravinsky. Thank you. Um, of of capturing the physical world mm-hmm. uh, in expressing it musically. Yeah. Um, you know that's what. Like you mentioned, that's what great artists do. They capture something, whether it's physical into musical or physical into painting,
1: um, or something invisible. Or the invisible yeah. into those things. The natures of things I was hoping to get across. Yeah. Yeah, the, the invisible natures of things.
0: And what struck me about when you talked about, he kind of layers the, the sounds for the bird, right? capture mm-hmm. captures yes. the fluttering, the tweeting, and the bouncing of the feet. Yes. Um, which I didn't catch all of it until you started showing the pieces, but but I... But before you even started breaking those pieces out for us, mm-hmm. I could envision the bird. Yes. You did it so well. Yes. But then I could hear, oh, that's how he's doing, the feet bouncing as you walked us through. And the, the word that jumped out to me from you is that um, the kind of awareness it takes. So I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about uh, how we become more aware in order to, to be subcreators, to do mm-hmm. well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in I'll use music as an example, but it should apply to all the other arts, all, all the other art forms. Um, the there are elements in music, just like there are elements in painting or uh, architecture, and uh, the elements in music are uh, variables that the composer uses uh, in differing. Um, Amounts, percentages, you know, to create the layering effect you're talking about. One of them might be uh, rhythm. One of them might be melody, might be harmony, changing of harmony. Um, I talk about form and uh, texture uh, and uh, timbres, different colors of instruments and voices and so on. And the composers, a good composer, is aware of how to make use of all of those elements. And what Stravinsky did in that, that dance of the Firebird is he, he wrote a, a bass line of cellos and, and, and bass, string basses playing pizzicato, plucking the strings, um, for a kind of hopping, irregular hopping uh, j- uh, rhythm sort of thing. And then in the woodwinds, he's got flute and piccolo and clarinet and uh, oboe Mostly the flutes and clarinets, nothing about it. Uh, playing all sorts of little trills and fluttering sounds, you know. And uses the piano very well as a kind of percussive instrument, you know. Pitches going, uh, making making short, dry uh, sounds, you know. Um, and the harp, um, and he uh, and he layers the the flute going like that, like a bird chirping, with a a kind of fluttering fee- feel in the strings and in the clarinets and so on of like wings going like that like mm-hmm, they do mm-hmm. and all you can you can't help it but see this bird i think you're you're dead on right uh that you saw it you see it in the music without even thinking about it but if you uh, if you take it apart you begin to see what the elements are mm-hmm. that he used to construct this vision of a of a chirping fluttering dancing mm-hmm. bird um and so the, the composer is thinking about all those elements. If, if you're talking about how do we go about learning to discern those things in our classrooms or in our teaching with our students and so on, I, I, would, I just tell them, ask the question, why, all the time. Hmm. Why did he write the flute part to do this? Why did he write the harp part to do this? Mm -hmm. What's he accomplishing with this strange pizzicato thing going on in the cellos? Why, 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 why? And with a great composer like Stravinsky, maybe the greatest composer of the 20th century, The the answers are apparent. You you get them. You know, right? With a mediocre composer, you may not be getting so many clear uh, answers to your question why. But that's how it is that you go about evaluating whether Mm. a composer is a great composer too. Because when you ask why, and it's like eating cotton candy. If you you know if you bite into cotton candy and it just dissolves, you know that well, it's fun to eat for a second, but it's not meaty you know, food. In the same way, uh, you can have trivial music, and you can have profound music. And the great composers are the ones that uh, have thought through. They're thoughtful composers. Mm -hmm. They've thought about why they do the way they do. And the more why questions you ask, the more uh, revelation you get, you know. I remember thinking about the Brahms symphonies one time as I was early grad student, and I had a copy of uh, all four Brahms symphonies in one volume, And I sat down, we were studying just one movement of one Brahms symphony at the time in our conducting class, and... And uh, I remember going home and looking through that and, and getting so much out of it. Like three hours went by, and I had, still hadn't gotten past the first few pages, and there's so much there. Huh. you know. And it slowly dawned on me, I could study this book of four symphonies for the rest of my life and not get all of it out of there. you know. Hmm. But there are reasons why Brahms wrote the viola part this way and the cello part this way at this moment. There's a reason there, and uh, those reasons give great delight when you dig them up, when you dig them out.
0: Okay, so for those parents, students, teachers um, who want to to partake in in the creative part, yeah, it's that same kind of having to both spend that time thinking about okay, if I want to portray a bird, yeah, what is the bird? What is the nature of the bird? Contemplate nature, of the bird? and then I guess observation beforehand, right? Absolutely, you know yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You want to be looking at birds, yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, um, and there are lots of things about birds that aren't immediately ascertainable, but if you bought the idea from revelation that God created the bird, mm-hmm. then you start looking, it's kind of asking the question now, that, that creator, why did you make him this way? Why did you? And you may not always get the answer, but whatever you'll get out of it will be a deeper understanding of the nature of birds. Right.
0: Well... Thank you, for, my pleasure uh, for, for joining me. I wanted to give you just a, just a minute to talk a little bit about uh, the Center for Western Studies before we. Oh, great! Down.
1: Thank you. Yeah, right. We uh, we have in two thousand eight we started the Center for Western Studies, and it's mainly a gap year program for kids who want to take a year off between high school and college and study two things, a Christian view of the world and the history of Western ideas, the influential ideas, through the arts. So we study literature and music and art and architecture and philosophy, uh, starting with the Greeks, and we work our way through to the 20th century in one year. So obviously we have to do things pretty quickly. Um, but we, we pick. Original sources, not necessarily original languages, but original sources anyway, and we read uh, in pretty intensively uh, for the year, and we. Um in the end of the year we rent an apartment in paris and one in london and we take them overseas and uh get to go they all have assignments in various places so we go to the louvre and the orsay and the uh, musée the the um, uh, cluny uh in paris and we go and see notre dame in paris and uh, saint chapelle and and we take the train out to Chartres and see Chartres cathedral um Uh, What else do we do? We've got a lot of things we do in Paris, um, and we eat well in Paris, (laughs) that's one of the wonderful things. Um, And then we take the train to London, and we go to the the National Gallery, and the the British Museum, and see St. Paul's, and Westminster Abbey. And uh, we take the train out to Oxford, and go and see where Lewis went to church, and see the kilns, and where he's buried, and so on. Anyway. we want them to have assignments in these—we've the, studied these, these works during the year, and now we're going to go and see— uh, many of them you see in person, and so each of the students has, say, three uh, presentations to give in the Louvre and three in the Orsay, and like that. Okay. And uh, each of the students is working on a different piece, so so we get a good smattering of of in-depth work, uh, looking at all these uh, great paintings, and and we go to concerts, we go to plays at on the West End, and you know we. See and do a lot of things in the two or three weeks that we're over there. Okay. Um, so that's the that's the plan, and the idea is that we would, we would help students to establish that there is no disconnect between their faith and their academic work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to see the influence of Christian ideas in the West, but also to be able to discern ideas that are not Christian. There are plenty of them that are not, that have been influential. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we read Karl Marx and we read Rousseau and we read uh, Nietzsche and, you know, we want to know some of the some of the, uh, the uh, really uh, influential ideas, especially in the 20th century, 21st century um, And uh, then they're prepared to go wherever they want to go, to college, um, study with atheists if they need to in order to know a particular field, but uh, they don't have to buy the assumptions about anthropology, about who we are as human beings, about who we are as spiritual beings. All those things won't get uh, sort of trampled like they often do. As you know, a lot of our young people go through church and and, uh, schools, uh, Christian schools, and they go off to college and they lose their faith. Mm-hmm. And that's horrible. What are we doing wrong, I wanted to ask. You know, what are we doing wrong? So this is an attempt to get a few people to see clearly how to navigate those very difficult waters uh, and do a good academic work without losing their faith.
0: Yeah. Where can people find out a little bit more about the
1: Right. Uh, our website is uh, centerws.com, C-E-N-T-E-R-W-S dot com. Uh, And there you can get an explanation for everything. We have our application on that uh, website. Uh, Also, you can write to me directly. Um, My web, my uh, uh, address, my uh, email address is director at centerws.com. And I'd always be happy to talk to anybody that's interested in in, uh, coming to study with us. That's uh, we we. It's a very small program. It's a tutorial program, so we never take any more than eight people at a time. We've never even had eight. We've had four, five, six, you know, okay. but uh, but not eight. And uh, so it makes for a very intimate group. And we have one-on-one time with the faculty members. Each of them get a chance to to write papers with the faculty and and uh, talk to PhDs in you know their fields, uh, talking about the great books that they learned and love so uh, it 's not it's something that you don 't often get in college in the, some of these smaller colleges are doing it now, and it 's really wonderful but uh, most you know state colleges you 've three hundred right. people in your lecture hall and you never get to talk to the professor directly okay. and all that so uh, we feel like it 's a, a rich kind of experience for our for our kids
0: okay well I'll add the, those links in the show notes as well oh, thanks for everybody, so. very good um, well thank you again for being with us uh, thank you all for joining us on another episode of Quiddity here on the Cersei Podcast Network we will be back with other speakers uh, in upcoming episodes um, and please check out everything that, that John has to offer at the Center for Western Studies for John Hodges I'm Brandon LeBlanc see you next time